Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. I pray that as we look into it, we would see your glory. We would see uh, the will that you have for us in pursuing after you. Help us to have a hunger for you, even as David did of old and as many of your saints have had. Uh, Give to us, Father, this inner drive. Uh, to seek after you with our whole hearts. We pray that you would anoint my lips, that you would take whatever feebleness that is there and uh, set that aside and that uh, your Holy Spirit would quicken the word to our hearts by your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A young man in... Gloucester saw an advertisement in the Boston paper and it went like this. Wanted, young man as an understudy to a financial statistician. Post office box 1720. Uh, He answered the ad and there was no reply. He wrote again and there was still no reply. A third time he wrote and still he didn't hear anything back. So he traveled to Boston, went to the post office there and asked the clerk who the owner of box 1720 was. And the clerk says, well, I can't tell you. He went to the postmaster and the postmaster says, no, it's against the rules. There's no way I'm going to tell you who the owner uh, is. And so the next day he took the train to Boston again and he just hung out there for hours waiting for uh, whoever owned that box to open it up. And sure enough, somebody came along, took the mail out and he followed him to a brokerage firm. And he went inside and he asked for the manager. The manager was a little surprised and he said, well, how did you find us? And he told the story of what he had all gone through. And the manager said, young man, you are just the kind of persistent fellow that I want. You are employed. Here was a man who had any number of reasons to give up his pursuit, but his pursuit was worthwhile enough for him that he stuck with it. He persevered. And in a far higher way, there are people who persevere in their pursuit of God 
and they are richly, richly rewarded. And there are others who allow the least distractions to get them away from the richness that the Lord has for them in their Christianity. Just this morning, I was reading for my own devotions a sermon by C.T. Studd that was actually republished by um, Peter Hammond. And it was called The Chocolate Soldier. And in there, he was talking about how so many Christians are not real men, real soldiers who are going out there pursuing like they should be, but they're chocolate soldiers who melt and who get soft at the least adversity that comes. And he said it really ought not to be. The least obstacles that are out there sometimes make people deviate from the spiritual goals that they have. It's not that they don't have goals. I think most Christians do want the best. They want these spiritual goals to be fulfilled, but they don't seek them with all their heart. Or as Hebrews 12 words it, they allow too many things to weigh them down. Or like the 12 spies, they allow a fear to divert them. They're not real soldiers of the cross. They are chocolate soldiers. Now, let me start by giving you three scripture promises along these lines. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29 You will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. And I want you to notice the condition that is given there. You will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. And he's not talking to unbelievers here. Romans 3 makes it very clear. Unbelievers cannot seek God. He's talking to his people and he's saying, I've got a richness of provision for your lives if you are serious about seeking them. If you're serious about seeking me, here's another scripture. Deuteronomy 28, verse nine. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Are you frustrated that God is not close to you? You know, even James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There are certain conditions that God puts in our lives. He says, you do this and here's what's going to follow. Uh, There is uh, the laws of cause and effect. Deuteronomy, oh, excuse me, Jeremiah 29, verse 12. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I was listening to a music album on uh, Wednesday that was titled Wise Men Still Seek Him. And I want to give to you this morning some of the ins and the outs of what that means to seek after the Lord with our whole heart. David was a person who you could look to. Many examples in his life of a man who sought after God with his whole heart. He thirsted for God like a man who was dying of thirst in the desert. He had to have God. There was going to be nothing that would get between him and the Lord. And I think the same was true of this retinue of magi or wise men. The first thing that we see is that the wise men sought Jesus without any excuses. Now, there were plenty of excuses they could have made if they had wanted to. Uh, Look at verses 1 through 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, and the Greek of that is magoi, uh, the English is magi, unless it's singular, it's a hard G then, it's magus. So, uh, if you're confused on that, uh, uh, join me because I always have to look it up in the dictionary. But uh, these were wise men, and we'll be looking a little bit more at some of the things that they did from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So here were uh, people who sought Christ despite... 
the fact that they had considerable inconveniences. And let me just list off uh, three of the inconveniences. First of all, there was the discomfort of a long trip. Uh, And it wasn't by automobile (laughs) like we have. They came all the way from Babylon. This would have taken them a long time. Uh, Second, it was a strange land. That by itself could have made them somewhat nervous. Uh, There's question as to whether they were foreigners or were they Jews, because there were many Jews in Babylon. Uh, But another reason is they probably had important posts that they had to take temporary leave from. And let me spend just a couple of minutes telling you uh, what they did so that we can understand the Magi through the rest of the sermon. They were not astrologers. That's a big misconception that many people have, is that Magi were astrologers. The book of Daniel uses the term Magi in the Septuagint, it's a Greek term, so in the Septuagint translation several times, and every single time it is distinguished from the class of astrologers and diviners. What the Magi were, were wise men who had special training to be counselors to the king. Um, And they also had special access to revelation. They claimed it was divine revelation, sometimes it was demonic, as in the case of Acts 8, which speaks of Simon who was a Magus. That's why he's called Simon Magus. He was a Magus influential among both great and small. And the great would be the magistrates. Acts 13 speaks of Elymas the Magus, who influenced Sergius Paulus, who is a proconsul. He was a magistrate. A Greek translation of Daniel calls Daniel and his three friends Magi. And Daniel eventually becomes the head of the Magi. Later on in Esther... Uh, Esther 8, verse 17, it says there were many Persian Gentiles who became Jews. And so the true faith had spread all throughout uh, Persia. And there were many people uh, who had studied the scriptures. And these people were no doubt um, uh, people whom the faith had been passed down to, believers who would come uh, to worship uh, the Christ. Josephus says that the Magi were people who could interpret dreams uh, frequently, had revelation, but always he said that they were counselors uh, to some uh, magistrate. And so the bottom line is these guys would have had a lot of inconveniences. They would have had to arrange for quite an extended period of time away from the king, who no, no doubt would miss them. A second excuse that they could have made was, well, we don't know where we're going or what we're doing. We don't know exactly what the next day or the next month is going to hold for us. These men had numerous uncertainties. Uh, Look at verse 2. They ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? God had revealed to them what the star meant. They said it was his star, but uh, they didn't know very much else. They didn't know the where, the why, the who, the how. There were a number of uncertainties that faced them. And those who feel like they've always got to be in control of everything that they're interacting with, almost always they want more information before they make a decision. Even if they have all of the information that's available, they still feel that there's so many uncertainties that they have a hard time making a decision. We would feel, I think, uh, many times much more comfortable if we could walk all the time by sight instead of by faith. Isn't that true? If we knew all of our ducks were in order, wouldn't be anything, no surprises that would be coming up. But these magi, like Abraham, followed the Lord's guidance with the information and just the information that the Lord had brought into their lives up to this point. 
They were walking by faith, not being deflected by uncertainty. And so I want to ask just briefly, why is it that we are so frequently reluctant to do so? I have known people who have so clearly had the call of God upon their lives to do something, and yet they're fearful of stepping out, fearful of getting going. And it's almost as if they fear that if they do so, God's going to let them down and they're going to be out there on a limb, (laughs) partly sawed off. You know, they're going to be in a fix. Uh, and, And here's what I think has been happening in their lives. They have allowed the fact that the world is filled with uncertainties, and that is a fact. They have allowed the fact that the world is filled with uncertainties to make them begin to think that God and His Word are also uncertain. And it is so important that we not allow that confusion to happen. We tend to think that the things that we can see clearly with our eyes are certain. That is an illusion. That is absolutely not true. Uh, Satan would love you to believe it, but it is not true. The only infallible thing in life is God, is the Bible. Uh, That's the only infallible thing that we have. And so how do we walk by faith? Well, we walk by faith by going out in obedience to the Lord, out in a world of uncertainties with our sight captured, our heart absolutely captured by the certainty of God's word and his promises. And so to use the uncertainties of life out there as an excuse for why I'm not obeying the Lord is walking by sight. It's not walking by faith. And it's believing Satan's lie that the... Things we can see are certain. God is not certain because He cannot be seen. Faith completely reverses that. Faith says that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And so don't allow uncertainties to paralyze you. Walk by faith or in what Paul calls the obedience of faith. A third excuse for failing to be out and out for Jesus is nobody else was. Uh, There are a lot of people out there that were chocolate soldiers No one else shares our enthusiasm. And what we do is we allow the cynicism of other people to corrupt our joy and to take away our energy. And that can easily happen. Well, these magis, I think, are examples on that as well. They sought Christ even when others did not share their enthusiasm. Verses 3 and following. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was troubled because... Christ was a threat. Now, I'm not going to get into it because it would take us too far afield, but if we looked at the prophecy of the star uh, connected with the Messiah in the Old Testament, you would find that this coming Messiah was going to obliterate the Edomites. He was an Edomite, and so he no doubt felt a threat from this Messiah, whoever he was. And Jerusalem, why were they troubled? Well, I believe that they were troubled because they didn't want trouble from Herod. Uh, They were people who... Uh, wanted to keep the status quo, as it were. And today we have got exactly the same uh, reactions. We have people who are directly threatened by Christ and they will very actively oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there are others who don't oppose Christ per se. What they do is they want to keep peace. And so if the world is troubled by their Christianity, they'll back off and back off as far as it needs to be so that they can be able to keep that peace. Look at how seriously Herod takes Christ's threat in verse 4. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, I want you to notice that Herod believes the Bible to be true. He takes it very seriously, but he does not submit to it. He does not submit to God. Isn't that interesting? 
Have you ever wondered about that? How can people oppose God, oppose Christianity when they know that it is true? Well, we Calvinists would say it's because they have total depravity. It's no mystery for us. It's not a lack of evidence. It's a bad heart that the Scripture points to. And so the difference between the wise men and Herod is not that they had some good in them and that Herod had no good in him. According to Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. Uh, It's not uh, that Herod was unsaved because he didn't seek, whereas the wise men were seekers. The only reason the wise men could be seekers is because God had regenerated them. He had given them faith. He had given them that desire to seek after Him. And so our salvation is 100% of grace. There's nothing we can earn or that we can deserve. Uh, Notice, too, that the scribes and Pharisees know exactly where Christ is going to be born. Now, look at verses 5 through 6. So they said to Him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, to me, that's kind of scary that people can know and believe the Scripture, but either oppose it or just ignore it. Just doesn't phase them in the least. And when society is filled with such people, here's the temptation. We believers gradually, little by little, can find ourselves uh, beginning to have our enthusiasm robbed and taken away as well. The wise men kept their focus on God, not on what the uh, religious leaders thought or what Herod thought or what Jerusalem thought. They kept their focus on God. And there is nothing that will rob your single-eyed devotion for God quite as quickly as beginning to worry about what other people think or what they're saying about you. So, be enthusiastic in your pursuit of God, even if others think you're extreme. In fact, I just tell people, let the Bible decide what's extreme and what's not extreme. You know, don't listen to people and let them uh, uh, quench your enthusiasm. The fourth thing that could so easily have been an excuse for these wise men is that there were indeed hypocrites in the church. Every church, well, most every church, will probably eventually have one or two hypocrites in it. I mean, that's just almost guaranteed that it will happen. Verses 7 through 8, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Herod professed to be a worshiper of God, but in heart he absolutely was not. He was going to destroy him. He was a hypocrite. And I don't know how many times I've heard unbelievers excuse their nonchalance toward the things of God by saying, well, the church is just full of hypocrites. I don't know how they'd know since some of these guys never darkened the door of a church. But even if that was true, even if the church was 100% filled with hypocrites, it doesn't let you off the hook before God. Other people's hypocrisy doesn't mean God's going to let you off the hook. You still are responsible before God. And so don't allow, allow the hypocrisy of others to dampen your zeal. And that can happen so easily in the church. Sometimes Christians can take all of the zeal and enthusiasm out of a brand new believer's Christian walk. Just take the wind out of their sails. And it's not just legalists who do that. Legalists can do that. But I've seen antinomians do that as well by criticizing these new believers who just love the Lord and they're wanting to please the Lord and all of the little details that the Scripture gives. And they keep saying, don't do that, you know. Don't be a legalist. And they just take the enthusiasm out of their lives. And my counsel, again, is ignore them. 
what you need to do is follow the word, the whole word, and nothing but the word. Don't allow the criticisms of others to take the wind out of your sails. The last excuse that these wise men could have made was that their quest was dangerous. But these magi sought Christ despite the danger. And that's what we as Christians are called to, aren't we? We are called to be soldiers of the cross who are willing to take risks, who are willing to face danger, not be chocolate soldiers. Uh, Are you willing to face danger for Christ or does the least little inconvenience divert you from the goals that you have set before your eyes? I think you can see that there could have been any number of reasons why these people could have procrastinated or completely abandoned their search for Christ altogether. And so we need to ask ourselves, in our pursuit of Christ, are we characterized by excuse-making or characterized by wisdom? We are not wise if we do not seek Christ with all of our hearts. Some people might say, well, we're living by grace and the Bible does not have any conditions for a believer. And I've heard a number of people uh, say that. In fact, we had one guy in Presbytery used to say that. There is no such thing as conditions in Christianity. Well, you're going to have to argue with a whole lot of New Testament and Old Testament scriptures that have the word if or when uh, in them. There's lots of conditions that the scripture gives. And we're simply going to be robbed throughout our lives of the glory, the joy, the meaning, the fulfillment that we could have if we don't pursue God with all of our hearts. And so that's my exhortation. Seek him. Seek him with all your heart. Now, second, and this is our last point, gives us seven ways in which we can seek him with the whole heart. First of all, talk about Christ to others. In verse 2 and in verse 7, we see that the wise men are not ashamed to talk to Herod about Christ. You might wonder, you know, what in the world does that have to do with um, seeking after Christ? Well, I believe it is a great test. It's a barometer by which we can measure where our hearts are at. Just imagine for a moment a woman who wants to get married to um, a wealthy man and She does love this guy and she likes his riches and he's kind, he's gracious, he's a very nice guy, but nobody else likes this man. And so she's a little bit ashamed of him and she wants to keep this marriage thing a secret. She doesn't want others to know about it and she doesn't want to be seen in public with him. What would that man think? He would know he has not captured her heart at all. And here's what Christ said. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. According to Jesus, there is a direct relationship between our speech before others and our heart, our heart pursuit of him. There's a direct relationship. My children have found uh, when they have been at work, there has been a lot of pressure to not say a whole lot about Christ, to keep quiet about his demands, especially when they're pressuring them into doing things that they should not be doing. But as they have treated God's word and God's presence and God's working in their lives as the most natural thing in the world for them to be talking about, it's not only made them more and more bold, it's become easier to talk, but they have noticed that it's drawn them into a newer and closer walk with God. There is a relationship between the two, between where our speech is at and where our heart is at. And so talk about Christ to others. After all, He is your beloved, right? He should be the one that you are the most proud to talk about. Secondly, be diligent to seek Him in your Bible reading, in your devotions, in your service, 
and the other things that you do. Now, Herod didn't really need to tell them to be diligent. In verse 8, it says, uh, he told them, go and search diligently for the young child. Well, they'd already been diligent. But I want to ask you how diligent you are uh, in your seeking to build up your spiritual gifts, uh, examining your spiritual goals, measuring uh, your walk, entering into prayer. How diligent you are, are you in raising your children in the fear of the Lord? And don't think that these men were able to achieve way beyond what you are able to achieve. I think it has to do largely with desire. Uh, the English novelist J.B. Priestley was once asked by some uh, other writers why he had excelled so much amongst uh, his other people who were with him who had some of the same skills. And he said this, Gentlemen, the difference between us was not in ability, but in the fact that they merely toyed with the fascinating idea of writing. I cared like blazes. It is this caring like the blazes that counts. How much do you care to know Christ and be drawn into a closer relationship with Him? You can say, well, I don't have the time, but really all of us do have the time to do the things we consider to be the most important in life. <clears throat> if we have the enthusiasm of these wise men, I think there is no one here who could not achieve incredibly great things for God. Incredibly great things. Theodore Roosevelt said, I am only an average man but I work harder at it than the average man. And so I would say, make it your goal to work harder at it than the average Christian in seeking after Him. Be enthusiastic. Be diligent in your search for Christ. And this is not contrary to grace. In fact, it's a fruit of grace. It's the very thing that grace produces in our lives. Another indication of the enthusiasm with which these wise men sought Christ is their great joy. Uh, verse 10, when they saw the star... They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. There is nothing like the realization God is real and God is at work in my life to give you joy and to give you enthusiasm. That's what they saw. This is a miraculous theophany, I believe. We'll talk about that in a moment. And it was giving them great joy to see God in their lives. The problem is we, we go up and down, up and down in terms of this walk with the Lord. And there are so many things that can rob us of that joy. I've had it in my life. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book that shows many things that can make us depressed and completely rob us of our joy. In fact, I highly recommend you get it. Even if you've never been troubled in this area, put it on your shelf so that you can get it, give it to other people. But it's called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cures. And back when I was in my 20s, uh, I went through really severe physical depression and that book ministered to me in an incredible way. And there were a lot of different things in there that ministered to me, but some of it was just practical advice that I as a dunce head wasn't able to figure out. He said, there, here's a bunch of biblical principles and it was just part of one little chapter. A bunch of biblical principles that say you need to take care of your body. And I had been losing sleep all year long because I hated sleep. I thought, what a waste of time. And I'm keeping pushing it back. And I was trying to get by on four hours sleep a night all year long. My body just wasn't built, you know, with that kind of a constitution. I couldn't bear up with it. So no wonder I was feeling miserable and depressed. I abused my body with fasting. And there were other biblical principles I really was not following. But one of the other pieces of advice that I got from Lloyd-Jones was to talk to myself like David did in Psalm 42 
and Psalm 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. In effect, what David was doing is he was recognizing, not totally, but in part, that joy was a choice. If he moped around and allowed his thinking to get him going in this downward spiral of negative thoughts, it would make him feel worse and worse. And so what he was doing, and I had to do this repeatedly, he was grabbing himself by the scruff of the neck. He was shaking himself and he said, stop it. Stop thinking that way. You know, I'm going to praise the Lord. Uh, He is great. He is worthy of praise. And as he began praising God and thanking God, the joy began creeping back into his life. Uh, My son Joel was uh, feeling really depressed one day and Jonathan basically gave him the advice, refuse to be depressed and whether you feel like it or not, start praising God. And I have found that it doesn't do any good to just praise God in your head because that doesn't affect the feelings quite as well. It helps some. But when you confess out loud your praise to God, it makes a profound difference. It's these outward praises that make and thanks to God that make the demons uh, run and make uh, our thoughts to be realigned. There is a connection that the Bible indicates exists between our physical frame and our spirit. And so you need to shake yourself up and say, stop it. Maybe even getting angry. I'm not going to think this way. I'm going to praise God. I'm going to rejoice. And you will find that joy creeping back into your life because those are declarations of faith that God honors. Another thought that I see in this passage is that great things don't happen until we step out in faithfulness to the Lord. The Jordan didn't part until they actually started to cross the Jordan. The beggar didn't get healed until he asked. And these men did not see the supernatural star until they got out of that palace and they started their journey in verse 9, beginning of verse 9. They didn't need the star, right, until they started on their journey. And inaction leads to stagnation. And as C.T. Studd said, inaction makes us jellyfish. (laughs) If you want to have joy... You must do as the wise men did and proceed with your marching orders. Some serve Christ out of duty. Others cannot get enough of serving Christ. They find such great joy in serving Christ and the things that they do. And that is the difference, by the way, between a job and a ministry. You can transform all of your jobs, whether they're in the home or a business, wherever. You can transform all of your jobs into ministries. Let me read you from one of Malcolm Weber's books on how you can tell whether you're doing a job or a ministry. He said, if you're doing it because no one else will, it's a job. If you are doing it to serve the Lord, it's a ministry. And if you look, by the way, in Colossians and Ephesians, uh, Paul uh, talks to the slaves who didn't have any choice on what kinds of things that they did. They had to do all kinds of menial chores. But he said that they could transform their jobs into ministries and do it as unto Christ. And just that one little thought there helped to transform my secular jobs, my secular employment in the lumber industry and then later as a janitor, transformed that into a sacred ministry that brought me fulfillment. And if you want more details on how you can do that, there's a fantastic book. Uh, It's out of print probably. It's InterVarsity Press. Um... But you can get it in the used bookstores, InterVarsity Press, and the author's name is Stanley Baldwin. It's called Take This Job and Love It. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Malcolm Weber goes on and he says, if you're doing it just well enough to get by, it's a job. 
If you're doing it to the best of your ability, it's a ministry. If you'll do it only so long as it doesn't interfere with other activities, it's a job. If you're committed to staying with it, even when it means letting go of other things, it's a ministry. If you quit because no one praised you or thanked you, it was a job. If you stay with it, even though no one seems to notice, it's a ministry. And why would that be true? Who are you doing it for? If you're doing it for God, it doesn't matter whether other people are praising you. You're looking for God's well done, right? If you do it because someone else said it needs to be done, it's a job. If you're doing it because you're convinced it needs to be done, it's a ministry. It's hard to get excited about a job. It's almost impossible not to get excited about a ministry. If your concern is success, it's a job. If your concern is faithfulness, it's a ministry. An average church is filled with people doing jobs. A great church is filled with people involved in ministry. If God calls you to a ministry, for heaven's sake, literally, don't treat it like a job. If you have a job in the church, give it up and turn it into a ministry. God doesn't want us feeling stuck with a job, but excited, fulfilled, and faithful to Him in a specific ministry. And I really think that this is a key to this whole area of seeking after Christ with our whole heart. Joy and fulfillment is a barometer. Some endure the Lord's day. Others find it a delight. Why? It really is a matter of focus. The joy of the Lord is the sign of the degree of maturity that we have in our closeness with walk. Now, don't, you know, there's, there's always going to be times when you have to fight for joy, as Piper says. But this should be our heart's desire and our heart's uh, pursuit. Fifth, their enthusiasm could be measured by the nature of their gifts. Uh, gift giving was a very important part of Christmas. Unfortunately, we have tended to be preoccupied with that. It's uh, tended to be all focused around that. But the principle shown here is that in these three costly gifts is that Christ deserves our best. Now, I'm not going to deal with it today either, but there is, I think, some wonderful symbolism that could make a great devotional all of its own. I just want to deal with the quality here, the quality of gifts. We don't just donate to the Lord our broken furniture, our refrigerators that don't work, you know, other things that some of these charities get. It's like, what are we going to do with this? They give us all of our cast-offs that nobody wants. God desires our best. In fact, that's one of the reasons it's called the first fruits in the Old Testament. It's because it was the best of the crop. It wasn't the stuff that's starting to, to rot or go bad. And so here's the thing I would ask. Are there times when we give to the Lord the things we value the most? Are there times when we break open the alabaster box and we pour the perfume on His feet just because we love it? Say, Lord, this is the best thing I can offer to you and I love you so much, I want to give it to you. How extravagant are you in your pursuit of the Lord? The sixth thing that I see in this passage is the complete and unreserved trust in God's Word that these magi had. Now, we don't have recorded what the revelation was that was given to them. They obviously had a revelation in Babylon as to what they were supposed to be doing to worship this Christ. But whatever means God chose to use, they trusted God's Word. And I should point out, they were not getting revelation by reading horoscopes. And again, this is a misconception people have about the Magi. They think, okay, they saw Saturn and Jupiter aligned and... 
therefore, there must be a, a child born to the Jews. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me uh, whatsoever. Uh, let me give you some reasons. First of all, we've already seen that the Magi are clearly distinguished from the astrologers in Scripture. Secondly, the Old Testament condemns astrology. It does not recommend it. Third, Herod wouldn't have had to ask the wise men, uh, you know, what time Jupiter and Saturn were aligned. His own wise men could have told him that. I mean, that would have been a phenomenal thing that everybody would have known about. A fourth, why would they know that Jupiter and Saturn being aligned, which is in the wrong year, by the way, but those being aligned uh, would have shown that a king was born to the Jews? Why not some other king? I mean, astrology just does not give you those kinds of details. Fifth, the implication in the passage is that the star appeared for more than a day. They've been on a long journey and it started out when they were in Babylon and they've been following this for how long? Uh, it just does not fit with planetary conjunction. Sixth, if you look at verses 9 through 10, you can see another reason there. It says, when they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. That is not an ordinary star. And the Bible uses the term star to refer to any heavenly light. If they had been living right now, they would have called a... Um, those things go around the... Um, a satellite. They would have called a satellite a star. Why? Because it shines at night, right? Um, lights on a helicopter up in the sky. You know, any, any light in the sky would have been considered a star. And uh, so let me just give you some uh, reasons why this absolutely could not have been uh, uh, that no star is close enough to the earth to stand over anything and to direct people. You go out, go outside and try to align any star with the earth. I mean, it's too far away to be standing over anything. Secondly, no star is something that moves that you can follow. Um, it, it just does not make uh, any sense at all. So I believe what this was, was the Shekinah glory of God appearing in some light in the heavens. They were given revelation as to what the significance of this was. They were told to follow it because the king of the Jews had been, had been born. And so they've been following it. It disappears, so they're asking around, okay, where do we go now? We're in Jerusalem, maybe it's here. So they think, you know, the most logical thing is to ask the king of the Jews. And then it's only as they start on their journey again that the star appears once again. And whether that revelation was like uh, what's recorded in verse 12 or Scripture is recorded in verse 6, they obeyed it immediately. And here's the point. The only certain thing we have in life is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. In the Bible, that's the only uh, uh, thing that we have because we no longer have infallible revelation that's being given by God now that the canon is closed. And when we have the word, absolutely nothing should shake us. A person once said that one person with a belief is equal in force to 90 who only have an interest. And I think that's one of the things that distinguishes our church is that we believe some things that others think are absolutely impossible, but we believe it because the word of God has said it. Now I want to end with the last indication of their enthusiasm, their obvious desire to worship. Worship was not just a bare ritual for them. It was a driving desire. They tell everyone in verse 2 their goal is to worship Christ. In verse 11, they actually do so. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. 
And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Worship was the goal of their lives. And in the Gospel of John, it says God himself seeks worshipers. In fact, it's the only thing that the Scripture mentions God seeking. It says the Father is seeking such to worship him. John 4, verse 23. So it's obviously important to God. It was important to Magi. It should be important to us as well. And if you have no burning desire to worship, just ask from the God who refreshes our hearts. Ask for a renewed heart and say, Lord, I used to have that desire. Refresh my heart. Give me this kind of a drive that I may worship you, that I may seek you with all of my heart. The wise men present a challenge to us. Will you be fools or will you be wise? What you consider to be important in life and the zeal and enthusiasm with which you pursue it, I think, answers that question. Will you be fools or will you be wise? What you consider to be important in life and the enthusiasm with which you pursue it, I think, answers that question. Jim Elliott, missionary who was martyred by the Alka Indians, said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We tend to be so intent on keeping our things and our agendas and our lives and our rights that many times we miss out on the eternal everlasting reward. And, and it really is a, a shame. You're going to be constantly frustrated if your only goals are creaturely goals. Now, we do need to have those and we need to transform them into spiritual goals, right? Everything that we do. But he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Be wise. Do not be chocolate soldiers. Seek Christ with all your heart. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word. And I pray that we would be saved from that kind of soldierliness that melts at the first sign of opposition, that uh, gets soft whenever there are inconveniences. Help us, Father, to be out and out for the Lord Jesus Christ and to seek Him with all of our heart. We need your grace if we are to be able to achieve this. And it is our desire. Because we want to enter more and more into what you have stored up for us. We want to go from faith to faith, from glory to glory. And we thank you that even that is a gift that comes from your hand. And so we seek that gift. Uh, even when we have not that desire, Father, we offer up before you the wish that we had that desire. And pray that you would work with that. And that you would increase that day by day. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.